Let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together, and we thank you for bringing me here, too. Anyways, uh, we ask your blessing in our efforts today as we continue our study of Mary's role in God's plan of salvation. Give us the insight, the inspiration to open our minds and hearts and to hear what you want us to hear through the lecture, through the video, through our own discussions. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. I'd like to do a little review here, because as I've said quite often, we have to carry forward what we've learned uh what we've read and heard and help to put it all together. You can't just take uh, scripture and go through and try to understand uh, one passage or one Bible, uh, one book or whatever and then forget it when you go to the next one. You've got to bring what you've learned already forward. So I want to do just a little bit of Review before we get into the primary part of today's uh, lecture. So as in previous uh, meetings, we talked about Mary's role in God's plan of salvation and its three major parts. Creation, where God created mankind in order to share his love, his very being. We have to understand exactly why God created man as well as all of the uh, earth and uh, everything needed to support mankind uh, because it all works together. It cannot be isolated from uh, other main reasons. But mankind sinned, and <clears throat> which then required some way to resolve the breach that sin causes between God and man, and thereby setting up the need for a plan of salvation. God wanted so badly to share himself with mankind that he was willing to overlook to a certain degree the sins of all mankind. But there had to be a resolution. There could not just be a whitewash and forget it. And that resolution was really the total idea of his plan of salvation. So when we talk about how this plan was implemented, and that is by God's de- designating certain people to be partners, or what I would prefer to call partners, and scripture generally calls them servants. I don't like the word servant. Uh, most people don't. But the idea of partners is a little bit, I would say, above the idea of servants. Partners are some people who are chosen for special roles in this plan of salvation. Now, we are all chosen. We are all required or have a small portion to play in God's plan of salvation. And it is the uh, constant search and uh, willing to fulfill our role, regardless of how great it or how small it might be. And 
God does not give us a role that is beyond our capabilities or beyond our state in life or beyond our uh, education or beyond anything. It is in conjunction with all of those things that he has placed us uh, in a given role. And that is in the fulfillment of that role is really what brings us peace of mind and heart. (laughs) So, why do you suppose that God did it in this way? In other words, why did he allow mankind to sin and then go through this tremendous effort, uh, which we call, you know, Judaism and then Christianity, etc. He could have done it in other ways. But again, it gets back to this idea of God's infinite love of his creation. These major roles which were played are filled by Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, and others in the Old Testament, and by John the Baptist, St. Paul, the apostles, and most of all, Mary the mother of Jesus in the New Testament. And I see that the typist says mothers here. Uh, Jesus only had one mother. Uh, Oh, well, I've been going to fire that typist for a long time. So, let us now consider how and why the most important role or partnership, because Mary was the most important partner that God could have chosen. So, let's get into some of the family life. What I'd like to do is to have you kind of develop in your own mind that this woman, Mary, was a human being. We we, that is the entire church, says that Mary was human, the most important human being in all of history. Mary was not a divine in any shape or form. She was not an angel. She was not anything more than a human being. But the most important, the most blessed human being in all of history and that is because she had to be, in a way, in order to bear the Son of God. And the most common phrase used throughout our Christian tradition is that Mary is the mother of God. And unfortunately, it is that same most common phrase that has created so much problem, particularly with uh, non-Catholic Christians, and to some degree even Catholics. They cannot understand how Mary can be uh, the mother of Jesus as well as the mother of God. Well, first of all, you have to go back, and all of the things that Mary did reflects Jesus in some way. Mary has never 
uh, in all of the actions, which we will go through here in a few minutes, uh, tried to bring attention to herself. So, if you believe that Jesus is both human and divine, and you can accept the fact that Mary is the mother of Jesus, you also then have to accept the fact that Mary is also the mother of God. That doesn't mean that she created or helped in the creation of God. But remember, God can do anything he wants. And this is what he wants, is to recognize the role that Mary played and crown it by calling her the mother of God. We will see that in the video that we will be showing a little later. Now, there is no Bible context. So many people say, well, if it's not in the Bible, it's not true. Well, that's not true either. Uh, Christianity, particularly Catholicism, stands not only on the facts and the truth of the Bible, but it stands on two other legs just as well. And that is on tradition that is derived from the first century uh, A.D., and all of the things that happened during the life and times of Christ, as well as the apostles. That is why we call our church the Apostolic Church. All right? One holy Catholic and apostolic. You all say that in the uh, Nicene Creed. Let's get back. All right. We stand on three legs. You know, Martin Luther made a big deal out of uh, what is called solo scriptura, that is, everything must depend on scripture alone. But we say no. Catholicism is based on three legs. Scripture, yes, by all means. But then tradition, the traditions of the first century, that is, the life and times of Christ and the apostles. And the last one is the responsibility that God gave Christianity and gave to all of us, and that is teaching the meaning of God's life, death, and resurrection. We call it the magisterium. Many people think about the magisterium as they should think about the hierarchy. Magisterium is not people. The magisterium is a responsibility, obviously. It has to be carried out by people. But the magisterium is an important role of Catholicism. Not only the hierarchy of the church, but of each one of us. We have, as, excuse me, we have not only the right, but the duty to share our faith with our fellow man. That doesn't mean beat them over the head you know, until they get it. As, as, you know, some Christian people do, they get a little carried away at times and practically uh, beat a person up if they don't accept uh, <coughs> their notions and thought of, of Christianity. No. It is a greater responsibility to do that through our example 
than it is to go out and, you know, wear a, a sandwich board, they used to call them, and walk up and down Main Street and try to promote uh, Catholicism. That's not something that we need to do. Yes, ma'am. Well, people who say they're, they're rich and only scripture-based, the Bible was not written right away. I mean, so you had to defend the church, the Catholic church, is what kept things going, passing it on word to word, and and through the the teachers because they only had the the, the scrolls and whatever. So if you're scripture based, then you're not starting very early on. No. Certainly not with Jesus. No, no, no. That's that's very true, and you made a, a good point of it that way. Uh, there are a number of other reasons why scripture alone is not uh, sufficient. Uh, the thing is, as we all know, Scripture has has been changed by mankind in many different ways. Not intentionally is changing the message necessarily, but changing the words. I think we went over that in one of the previous lessons. Uh, scripture, the New Testament, was written primarily in Greek. And, of course, we've often heard the phrase, well, that's Greek to me. Uh, it was written in ancient Greek and then translated into Latin. And for 1,500 years, from the time of the 4th or 5th century, uh, in the time of St. Jerome, uh, to the Second Vatican Council, well, actually before that, to the Council of Trent in the 15th century, uh, Latin was the primary uh, language of the church. And then it was translated beginning in the 15th century into various languages. Uh, and of course it wasn't until Vatican II that the Mass and all of our Catholic uh, rituals uh, were said in uh, the local language whether it be English or any other language of the locale. So, in the process of all of those changes, words get um, changed around, and sometimes uh, not with intention, but accidentally, the meaning gets a little changed. The message should not be changed, though. And that is it. As we've said before, the Bible is the word of God, but not the words of God. Meaning that the Bible is the message that God wishes us to, re- to receive. But we have to look past the words because quite often those words do not have the same meaning today as they did 2,000 years ago when they were written. So you've got to be extremely careful when you're reading scripture. Uh, you cannot reading like you cannot read it today like you would read a novel. You've got to understand what those words meant at the time they were written, and what did that writer say. If you go back into the Old Testament, you have a greater problem. Because the Old Testament, and to some degree the New, but primarily the Old Testament 
is written on two levels. The spiritual level and the everyday level of that meaning. And look at, for example, the prophets. When the prophets would uh, make some declaration, some prophecy that we call prophecy today, the people who heard that had to have some understanding of what that meant to them at that time. Otherwise, it was worthless. And therefore, we had to have meaning for the people of the prophet's time and another slightly different meaning for the people of time down the the road, so to speak, and today. Let me give you an example. In uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, back around the 7th or 8th century, well, maybe a little more recent than that, no, 7th or 8th century would be right. Isaiah was confronting uh, the king uh, Ahaz and telling him that he could not develop an alliance um, with the enemy. The enemy at that uh, particular time uh, was Assyria. And God did not want him to develop an alliance with Assyria. And Ahaz was ignoring Isaiah the prophet who was trying to warn him. And Isaiah says, and you've heard this hundreds of times at Christmas, listen, O king, God will then give you a message. And a virgin shall bear a son and call him Emmanuel. Well, that had to have a meaning to Ahaz at the time. And it was. It was a sign of God's intention to take care of the Jewish people of that time without this alliance. And that perhaps it was one of Ahaz's only uh, own wives. The you know, general feeling is it was one of his many wives, which was, you know, part of the culture at that time, who was still a virgin. And that wasn't unusual that kings would marry girls uh, and still not consummate uh, the marriage. And so they would be uh, a virgin until, of course, the consummation. And in this case, the prophet is saying that one of his wives would have a child uh, without that process. All right? But we today interpret that something entirely different as applying to Mary and Christ. So you see that the time difference, you got to be a little careful. So Catholicism is not based on scripture alone. Any questions on that? All right. Let's let's go on. I want to get into some of this detail. If you read Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2, 
it gives you so much detail about Mary. And it's interesting that the only other gospel that has any reference or detail to the record or the infancy details of Christ's birth was Matthew. And if you compare the two, you'll see that Matthew writes from a Jewish viewpoint and it's almost very, well, it's almost entirely masculine. Mary is mentioned very little in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it's written more from the point of view of, of uh, St. Joseph. But in Luke's Gospel, Luke was Greek. And the Greek people at that time honored and favored their women. So Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2, has a great deal of detail about Mary. And there are other uh, women mentioned in Luke's Gospel later on. Mary is mentioned quite often. Okay. But at the birth of Jesus, you have the unusual uh, conception and the betrothed question that comes up quite often. Uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but had not come together to consummate the marriage, which was the normal thing in, in that culture at that time. Uh, and yet she was now pregnant with uh, Jesus through the inspiration and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mary accepted that, but can you imagine the problem that this young woman faced in that culture by being pregnant without having fully completed the marriage process. You know, that would create a tremendous um, scandal in most cases. And Joseph, recognizing this, but being a humbled man, not wanting to uh, expose her and create another problem, just decided to kind of quietly uh, give her a, a letter or a bill of divorce, which was acceptable according to the Mosaic law, and just set her aside and sort of disappear. Well, we know the story that the angel appeared to Joseph and said, don't worry, go through with this. This is the work of God and his plan of salvation, although he didn't use those words. Uh, and this will work out okay. Well, that was a burden for both sides. But they fulfilled it. They were willing to fulfill their role in God's plan of salvation, but Mary's role continued on. <coughs> Pardon me. That is a, a general common belief, yes. I don't know if you all heard what June just said, but it is a common belief, but not a teaching of the church, okay? So please understand it that way. It is one of the beliefs that Joseph may have been an older man, and of course this uh, 
marriage was arranged by the parents, obviously, because that was part of the culture. And he may have had children before, by the previous marriage. But, according to church teaching and tradition, and I'll explain this uh, why in a few minutes, uh, Mary and Joseph never consummated the marriage in the traditional way. And both by consent, by their own consent and the understanding. You see, just because we only get a very short peek at the uh, meeting of Mary and the angel at the time of the conception and a very short peek of the meeting between Joseph and the angel, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot more to it. But we only get the necessities out of it. So there could have been a lot more. We don't know that. And we don't know that there wasn't. So, well, uh, all right, Arita's question is, do we know if Joseph and Mary were ever married? Yes, they were. But we have no, you know, no document, no marriage license or anything. But the tradition is, the tradition is, yes. Now, the custom was at the time that the betrothal period began when the parents brought the two together and it was accepted by all parties. Not necessarily, you know, did they turn cartwheels over what they were going to be doing because a lot of times, and this isn't unusual, uh, my own Mother-in-law and father-in-law's marriage was one of those arranged, you know, which didn't go back to the first century, although I sometimes think it did. (laughs) So that was a common custom, and still is in many cultures today. The marriage period or the betrothal period lasted a year, and then the final was when um, the groom would take the bride into his home. And then that constituted the um, the marriage in total. Yeah. Yes, Joe? Well, I'm curious because you use the terms that he was going to use divorce, the papers of divorce, so that uh-huh. would indicate that surely there was a marriage and you wouldn't need a divorce, or does divorce mean something different then? The divorce would have covered the betrothal agreement. Not necessarily a marriage, but it still would have stopped the... Yes, yes. Uh, The betrothal agreement. Yes. As a marriage? Yes, very very much so. Mm -hmm. Yes, because... The the last part of that, the, the taking of by the groom of the bride into his home, was less important. Yeah, but that was the the you know it was probably a little social gathering, but not near as important as the betrothal. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's let's move on. Uh, 
Yes, did you have another question? Oh. <laughs> um, when we think about Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem, it was to fulfill a rule of um, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who called for a census, and every uh, family had to go back to the origin or the hometown, you might say, of that family. Well, uh, Mary and Joseph were of the tribe and family of Judah, and therefore had to go back to Bethlehem, which was the seat of that particular family, to be enrolled in the census. And uh, we all know the story how when they arrived, there was no room in the inn, so they had to uh, find shelter because she was about to give birth. And so the innkeeper said, well, the stable was available and they could uh, at least have shelter for the time being there. Uh, please make note, Jesus was not born in the manger. Okay? He was born in a stable uh, of some kind. The manger is the trough, the little small thing that the animals ate from. All right? And it held nice clean straw and so forth. And that is why Jesus was laid in a manger after he was born. Mary did not straddle the trough, you know, to give birth. Okay? That does present some picture, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, you, you know, what I'm trying to do is give you a, 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 an idea of what this family went through. Yes, ma'am. No. No. You mean, you mean marry him or whatever? Well, that might have been problem, but we have no way of knowing, you know, that to my knowledge that's never been brought up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, after the birth, we have the, the great event you know, of the shepherds coming. Interestingly, shepherds were not Jewish people. That was a demeaning uh, job, for lack of a better term, and therefore those shepherds were Gentiles. So it was interesting that Gentiles were the first ones to come and worship the Lord. Of course, they didn't know he was the Lord, but they knew because the angels said that there was something very special about this particular child. And Mary and Joseph began to wonder, even though they knew that the child that Mary was carrying for nine months was going to be very special. But we don't know for sure if they knew all the details. They probably didn't. They would have been frightened to death if they knew all the details. And Joseph would have said, no way am I going to get involved in that. Uh, so, you know, you can think about it in human terms. 
But I feel that it's important that we kind of do this to get a, you know, because so many people have these uh, glorified ideas of what the Holy Family is. But at the same time, you got to think of the fact that they were just a human family and had to enjoy or suffer all of the consequences of everyday life. Remember, that is why Jesus, the Son of God, came to life in the first place, in the form of man. It's because he wanted to be human, just like all of us, and experience all of the trials, tribulations, as well as joys of being human, in order to offer back to God this perfect divine being that he was as the perfect sacrifice in repentance for the sins of all mankind. You have to keep that constantly in mind. All right. Now, there are two major Jewish rites at the time of the birth of a child. One reflecting the child himself, and that is the circumcision, which we uh, sort of have lost over the years. It used to be that we would celebrate the Feast of the Circumcision on January the 1st. And over the years, that uh, January the 1st has been changed over and over and over until it is now the Feast of the Mother of God. It all fits together, and it's important to reflect again that Jesus is the most important person in all of these events, and Mary is there to support him. The two uh, rituals, Jewish rituals that were being followed, of course, is the uh, naming of the child on the eighth day along with the circumcision. Then, 40 days after the birth, the mother has to offer a couple turtle doves uh, or pigeons uh, in the purification rite. Remember, this is 40 days later. In the meantime, obviously, they moved out of the stable and into some at least livable quarters. Would they not? Remember the census would have been over by that time, but they were still in Bethlehem and went through the purification rite that affected all mothers. They could not do certain things. They could not go into the temple and there was a a bunch of other uh, little things that they couldn't do until after the 40 days and the purification rite. And that is that is when we hear the words of both uh, Simeon and Anna at the time of the dedication and the time of the purification ceremonies. And they predict the importance of this particular child. And at the same time, Simeon tells Mary that she also 
was going to suffer. Well, it's, he says, I think the words are, that a sword will pierce your heart to reveal the intentions of all mankind. That's important because it follows on and helps us to understand the important role of Mary. Okay. And then you have the problem of the flight into Egypt because Herod wanted to uh, Herod was afraid after he learned from the uh, Magi now that we say Magi uh, some people say that they were astronomers others say they're kings uh, others say they're wise men well we don't know for sure exactly what they were we know that they were not Jewish they were uh, of royalty coming from the east and they were told, uh, again, by an angel in their own study of the star that uh, seemed to appear over Bethlehem, uh, that this was something or somebody very important. And when they inquired of Herod, he became frightened because he was sort of a, a willy-nilly type of person, not very strong. He was more or less a puppet of the Romans at the time and uh, he was afraid for his own job so he said oh yes you go and find uh, this child and then come back and let me know well as you know the angel uh, let the three wise men know not to go back to Herod and of course when the time was passed and he found out Herod found out that the Three wise men uh, had left and returned to their own country without coming back to him. He got pretty upset, and he goes to slaughter all the male children of Bethlehem, <coughs> younger than two years old. So the two years figures because he didn't know exactly when this child was born. So he figures that he's going to get get them all by slaughtering all of the male children. Incidentally, uh, that is sort of a counterbalance, you might say, in the slaughtering of the uh, firstborn way back at the time of Moses as the final plague. You have a number of incidents in the New Testament that sort of counterbalances in one way or another, either in its own meaning or uh, purpose or or some factor that enters into uh, a significant comparison. Uh, We won't go into that, but uh, it would be interesting, I think, if we had a comparative uh, Bible, you might say, between Old Testament and New Testament that showed all of these uh, sort of, for example, the slaughtering or, or the proposed slaughtering of Abraham's son Isaac, uh, the sacrificing of an only son, is the same counterbalanced by the sacrifice of Mary's older son in the New Testament. We have a number of those throughout. Anyways, uh, this family now has to flee into Egypt. Now, Egypt is just across the border from Israel. It was then and it is today. 
So they didn't have to go that far. But nevertheless, when you are walking, it's quite a distance, right? Um, and they were concerned about, you know, how close behind are the soldiers or whoever was carrying out this slaughtering. We don't know how long they were in Egypt or what they did in Egypt. Uh, there are several uh, locations, you might say, that are in Egypt even today where people claim that this is where Mary and Joseph lived while they were there. Well, you know, you got to take that as a, a tourist trap more than anything else because there's no way to prove or disprove it. So it could be. We have no way of knowing. But that was must have been a tremendous burden in, in itself for the Holy Family to travel by foot, uh, reestablish themselves, we have no way of knowing, but remember they received uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, from the wise men, so they probably had sufficient funds, one way or the other, uh, to live on. So whether they worked or not, we have no way of knowing. Okay. Then it said after Herod died, the angel appeared again uh, to Mary and Joseph, and told them to return. Now, this is a way of God continuing his plan of salvation and getting things to work. Uh, It's interesting, again, as a comparison, that the flight into Egypt is uh, sort of a counterbalance by the whole idea of Jacob in the Old Testament in the book of uh, Genesis, who had to flee into Egypt to avoid the famine that was taking place in Israel. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, the, the idea of Joseph and his family moving into Egypt, and then, you know, there's a long story there, but the whole family moved down there. Eventually, that was part of God's plan of salvation as well. Because as families developed, and I'm sure this is true more today than it was back then, but as families developed, they start scattering out. God did not want that at that time. He wanted to develop a nation, a loving community, out of Jacob and his family. So he wanted them to remain in a sort of closed community in order to develop as a nation, which they did. Unfortunately for them, after a period of time, they became slaves. Uh, And, you know, the story of Moses then finally getting them uh, out of Egypt and bringing them back to Israel. Well, now the angel is asking Mary and Joseph Joseph to return from Egypt to back to Israel and to Nazareth eventually. Again, part of God's furthering his plan of salvation. But it's another burden of moving long distance. 
packing up everything you have and traveling, and then reestablishing yourself. Now you wonder, why did they reestablish themselves in Nazareth rather than Jerusalem? Again, God's plan. Uh, and also, tradition tells us that that's where Mary's family came from, was Nazareth. Uh, we don't know where Joseph's family came from. Uh, but we, we suspect or we are told through tradition that Mary's family came from Nazareth and that is where they settled. Now, they settled there and uh, one of the things I did forget, an important point I did forget earlier was when Mary was uh, pregnant uh, with uh, with Jesus, she made this trip from Nazareth, and that's why they believe that that's where she came from, down to Jerusalem to visit her distant relative Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say? When she first hears Mary's voice calling for her, the babe within Elizabeth's womb, St. John the Baptist, uh, leaps for joy because the Lord himself is approaching through Mary carrying him in her womb. So when the two ladies meet, it's a joyous uh, time for them. Uh, Elizabeth being a very elderly lady uh, and pregnant and Mary being a very young lady and pregnant, you know, they had a lot to share. Mary could give Elizabeth a lot of physical help. Elizabeth could give Mary a lot of spiritual help as well as uh, education, you might say. Put it that way. All right. We're going further, and after they return from Egypt, uh, they settle in Nazareth. We don't hear much about them at all in their time in Nazareth until about the year that Jesus is 12 or 13. And they go to Jerusalem, which was a requirement of all Jewish families to go to Jerusalem at least once, but preferably three times a year. Well, three times was probably way too much for a lot of them coming from a distance. The distance between Nazareth and Jerusalem is about 80 miles. And remember, they did not at that time go through Samaria. That was sort of a forbidden territory. So to make matters even worse and the distance even worse, they would cross over the Jordan, come down... <clears throat> the east side of the Jordan, and then crossed back at Jericho to get to Jerusalem, simply because the culture was that they were always to avoid the Samaritans. Right. So the whole long story about why, and I won't go into that today. Right. So at the time of uh, this particular event, in attending uh, to the ritual 
uh, rites of Passover, where they were to uh, go to uh, Jerusalem, uh, they fulfilled the requirements there. It's uh, generally a three-day ceremony. And then they returned. Now, Jesus and Mary did not travel alone. People did not travel alone in those days, particularly because not only of the long distance, but because of the Samaritan problem. So, obviously, they traveled by a community, whole community moving at one time and helping each other, uh, probably uh, camping at, at night together, sharing the responsibilities of, of preparing meals and uh, so many other things. So they did not travel together. They traveled in a community. And going home, uh, it was the same thing. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus would travel with people that they knew. They would go uh, again back the same route to Jericho across the Jordan up the east side and then back over again to Nazareth eventually. So what happens? Well, you know, what happens to any kid that is in a group of uh, familiar faces and friends and so forth? He's going to wander off and explore. So, you know, this little bratty kid goes off and stays there and and gets involved in the temple. Uh, Now, you might say, well, you know, what's behind that? You have to start thinking about Mary and Joseph from the time Jesus started to walk and talk and, you know, take on livelihood, that they would talk to him and try to get him to understand the unusual circumstances of his birth. We all know and recognize the unusual circumstances of Jesus' birth. They're not going to keep that from him. They're going to have him try to understand what that meant because they didn't know all the details or the significance of it. And to study in the synagogue in Jerusalem of the records of history and the prophets, uh, the prophecies of the prophets that might refer to him and try to develop uh, an understanding of how all of those prophecies might apply to him. Um, Now, obviously that's not going to happen to a three or four year old kid, but as time goes on, Jesus became very familiar with the scriptures, and that is why when he started to talk to the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, uh, they were overwhelmed by his knowledge and understanding. That's not because he was God. That was because Mary encouraged him to study the scriptures so that he would understand why he had such a special set of circumstances surrounding his birth. Just because he says, when Mary says, you know, 
why did you do this to us? In a very nice way, of course. Uh, He responds by saying, well, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Well, don't take that too far. Every firstborn Jewish male could say that with all sincerity because of the dedication rite that we talked about earlier. Every firstborn male was dedicated in a special way uh, to God and could claim to say that God was his father. They didn't do that because it was not part of the culture, but nevertheless, they could legally have said that. Uh, and Jesus is saying the same thing. So, it is believed that while Jesus was uh, of that age, and up until the time of maturity, which in that culture did not happen until the age of uh, 30, did uh, a person really become uh, legally an adult. And at the baptism is when we feel that his divinity and his humanity return. Remember, it says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus set aside his divinity in order to be a humble man. They call him a slave in uh, that particular passage. Uh, But a slave is quite often a biblical reference to anyone who was not uh, of the family of God or divine, such as angels, etc. Not that the angels are divine, but uh, certainly above humanity. So you got to be a little careful there. But those kinds of things are important. I want to jump ahead because our time is running out. I'm finding that I'm talking too, too much. Uh, but I hope you find it somewhat educational to put a lot of this stuff together. All right. The important things is really uh, Mary does not appear in any reference at all with the exception of the marriage feast at Cana. And there again, she is instrumental in uh, answering the needs, not necessarily the prayers, but the needs uh, of the people. In the marriage feast in Cana, there's two important aspects. It was always the groom's responsibility at a wedding of that culture uh, to provide the wine. All right. So Jesus, although he wasn't the groom, takes on that role. But you see in, Matt, in uh, John's Gospel, where that uh, appears. John's Gospel, again, like I said in the Old Testament, is written on two levels. The spiritual level as well as the practical or everyday level. All right? And in that spiritual level, God, through Jesus, who has now come back, or his divinity and humanity have now come back and, and returned, is providing an abundance of wine to show God's love for his his creation, for his church. 
and overabundance. You see, uh, six water jars holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Well, that would, you know, put the whole town uh, in a stupor. Uh, even though the marriage ceremony was traditionally uh, a whole week, a whole week, uh, 20 to 30 gallons times six would be a heck of a lot of wine. Uh, and it was the best wine. So, in John's Gospel, that is a reflection of God's love on mankind. An overabundance of love and forgiveness. Right? But what does Mary do? She comes to Jesus and tells him that they have run out of wine. And Jesus said, well, you know, my time hasn't come yet. But the implication is, I'll still do it because of your request. And so she goes back to the waiters and tells them to do whatever he tells you. Those are important words because, again, if Jesus is doing something to reflect all mankind, Mary's words are to, are addressed to all mankind just as well. You have similar things. Uh, let me give you another example of a, the double level of understanding. We all know, uh, I've heard many, many times the story of Jesus sitting at the well in Samaria and uh, on his trip down from Nazareth to Jerusalem, the apostles go off to find food and he's sitting there alone asking and he's at the Jacob's well, and he asked this lady who has come uh, to the well with a jug to gather water to take home, and he asks her for a drink, and they start up a conversation. You all know the story. All right. The double meaning there is, if you look at it as just a story about a woman and the, the water and so forth and so on, it works out all right. But think about it this way. The woman represents Judaism, particularly the Samaritan form of Judaism. All right. Jesus represents God. All right. Remember, after she recognizes that there is something special about him, and she says, that she knows that the Messiah is coming, and he tells her, I am the Messiah. I am he who you expect. And she gets really upset, you know, and, and joyous and everything else. And he says, well, go back and get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right, you don't. You had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. All right? Take that onto a spiritual level. All right? If that, if the woman represents Jerusalem uh, or Ju- Judaism, she's coming with an empty jar, meaning that Jerusalem has empty faith at that point in time. Jesus is telling her about her five husbands. They are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, 
and the Greeks. And the guy she's living with currently is the Romans. Does that make sense? Because Judaism was in some way in bondage like marriage or the wife in those marriages at that time. And each one of these particular countries had Judaism in bondage at some point in time. And currently it was under the domination of the Romans. So, when this woman accepts what Jesus is telling her and invites her to stay there and Jesus and the apostles do, they then begin to convert. And eventually, of course, the, the Syrians become uh, almost all Christians later on. So you see the double meaning of scripture. It can be that, and it can be fascinating when you see other stories that have a double meaning like that. Alright. The thing that we want to look at now is the idea of Mary at the foot of the cross. All of the apostles except John abandons Jesus for fear that the Romans are going to capture them and crucify them as well. Mary and there's another Mary also there. We don't know quite who she is. Uh, and John the Baptist, uh, I mean, John the Apostle, the evangelist, remains. And Jesus, in his last moments, is trying to make sure that Mary is taken care of and given and is given to John the the evangelist as her protector in the same way that he gives Mary to him he gives Mary to all of his followers to all of us and that is why we call Mary the mother of the church as well as the mother of God because she is given to us as our mother. Very important aspect. Um, excuse me, this thing is getting a little uncomfortable here. Later on, we sort of lose sight of Mary, except that she appears to be in uh, the midst of the apostles at the time of Pentecost. Remember, the apostles are in the upper room uh, with Mary and a few of their very close disciples when the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon them on Pentecost Sunday, which would have been 50 days after uh, the crucifixion. Right? But that's the last we hear of Mary at all in uh the New Testament. Even after the resurrection, 
there is no indication of Mary. Uh, we have Mary Magdalene uh, being the first human person that we know of, in the Bible that is, and then the apostles. So Mary Magdalene is often called the apostle to the apostles. Uh, that's not an official title, uh, but it is often looked at it that way. So, you can see this role of Mary uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, the early New Testament. The thing that I want you to see is that in none of these stories, none of these incidents, does Mary ever claim uh, importance or attention to herself. Everything is directed to Jesus and nothing to herself. Even in the Magnificat, in the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, Mary declares, my soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, is always reflecting whatever the Lord does or says. And we will see in subsequent meetings, when we talk about some of the Marian apparitions, every one of the Marian apparitions, by the way, uh, not to digress, a couple of years ago we showed a video on uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Does anyone have that particular video? Anyone in here? You have it? Oh, good. Because I, I would like to show that. Could you bring it in? I would appreciate it. Yeah. It's uh, it's one of the older ones, isn't it? The one that's dramatized. The story is dramatized. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah. Would you bring it in, Margaret? Would appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, in subsequent meetings, we're going to be talking about the apparitions, uh, some of the miracles that are attributed to Mary as an intercessor. You remember, God is the only one that can work miracles. But human beings can uh, pray and be an intercessor for a particular purpose. So keep that in mind. God is the only person that can work miracles. No one else. Uh, all right. Um, any questions so far? Well, the only I would, the only reason I brought, put that in there is that when we say the stations of the cross, uh, there is one of the stations for third or fourth, fourth. Uh, that is the uh, station where Mary meets Jesus on the way. There is no uh, biblical support for that. Yeah, but we, excuse me, we assume that that is to be um, correct on the basis of tradition. Uh, uh, and it would be logical. I think if you've seen the movie, uh, uh, The Passion of the Christ, that is done extremely well, where Mary and supposedly a younger person, supposedly Mary Magdalene, but we're not certain, doesn't say, follows Jesus but behind the scenes. And at one point in time, 
she goes out of her way uh, to meet him and to comfort him on the way. Uh, but there is no uh, biblical uh, or scriptural support for that. Yeah. Right, thank you, Mike. Um, yes, the whole the whole uh, reason for this form of lecture is to help us consider and understand that Mary, that Mary is Mary is a human being, and she is going to act like a human being. But she is given very special privileges after her assumption, which will be the subject of next week's uh, lecture. All right. Uh, I want to hurry because we're going to run a few minutes over. I hope that you don't mind. Okay. Any questions? All right. <clears throat> Well, I hope you got something out of the movie or the video. As I've said before, they don't necessarily follow right along with the lecture, but I think they'll supplement uh, or add to the lecture. So let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask that you continue to bless us with insight into the meaning of Mary's role in your plan. Help us to open our minds and our hearts. Help us to pray that we better understand Mary's role so that we can fulfill our role. We ask your blessing in all the things that we do. And we give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. And we end by saying, Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.